not usually all that thankful about announcements, but I'm very thankful for them today because I opened up my binder to pull to my announcements. I realized that I had printed my sermon, but I didn't put it in here. So uh, <laughs> glad I was able to run back to the printer and get it. That was a nice blessing. Um, let me uh, encourage you to turn in your Bible to John chapter 3. We're going to finish, Lord willing, we're going to finish the chapter this morning. And <clears throat> I want us to um, just dive into the text this morning. I, I want to read verses 31 through 36 in John chapter 3. Follow along with me. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent, sorry, the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This morning I want us to look at three distinct things as we listen to John the Baptist here speaking about Jesus Christ. And he tells us at least these three things. He tells us that Jesus is better than John himself. He tells us that Jesus is a better witness than himself. And he tells us that Jesus is superior to himself. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for the goodness of who you are and what you have given us in Christ. I ask, Lord, that this morning as we dive into your word, Father, that you would be, you would be faithful, faithful with your spirit to convict us of sin and, and faithful with your spirit to, to lead us to understand the truth and to apply it to our hearts so that we love you more fully and desire and are empowered to be able to walk faithfully with you. God, I ask that you would remind us of the sufficiency of Jesus. And Father, we would make much of him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Let's start with our first point. Jesus is better than John. Look at verse 31 again. It says, The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. <clears throat> now, before we, we jump too far <clears throat> excuse me, into this this morning, we need to make sure we know who our author is, is speaking about. And there are two characters here, the one who comes from above and the one who comes from the earth. And the one who comes from above is Jesus. This has already been made clear to us in chapter 3, verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. So the one who comes from above or from heaven is Jesus. The other person, as you can guess from our point, is John the Baptist. And some might struggle a little bit with this comparison. You know, why, why, why does John feel the necessity to, to compare himself to Jesus in this way? But remember that John the Baptist was enormously popular at this time. 
And John has been the focus of our text since verse 22. And if you remember from last week, even John's disciples were comparing Jesus and John together, and they were picking John over Jesus. So the comparison here is Jesus, who comes from above, comes from heaven, and John, who comes from the earth. Notice that the origin uh, is the point of comparison here. Jesus comes from heaven, John comes from the earth. And the reason why this, is, this, this comparison is important because of where someone comes from stresses their authority. The point is not to say that John the Baptist was not great. But whoever you compare with Jesus, no matter how great they are, they are nothing. Because Jesus comes from God while the rest of us come from earth. We come from, as we discussed quickly this morning, we come from the first Adam. He is the second Adam. We come from sinners. I hope most, if not all of you, love your mom and dad and treat them with honor and respect, but that should not negate the reality that you acknowledge that your parents are sinners in need of a Savior, just as you are a sinner in need of a Savior. John, although great, is only human. Jesus, on the other hand, is divine. He is from heaven. He is God. As chapter 1, verse 1 makes clear, I should say chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 make clear, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And thus, He is also perfect. He is holy. He is pure. Jesus is the master. John is the servant. And that relationship can never change. And John has already stressed this point repeatedly. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verses 29 through 30. It says, The next day John, was, or John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. Notice John emphasizing right from the get-go, this Jesus is not just another like me. He is greater than me. He is, he is beyond me. He is, he is above me. There is no true comparison between him and me. None of them will do it and do him justice. But getting back to our text this morning in verse 31, notice that after stressing the reality that Jesus is better than John because Jesus is from heaven and John is from earth, the one who comes from above is above all. And the one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. This, this emphasis here on, on Jesus being above, beyond, better, also is connected to, to what he says about John, that John is, is from the earth. In other words, he was like us. He had good qualities, and he had bad. He was far from perfect. But Jesus... Jesus, unlike John, who spoke truth and spoke what God told him to say, but yet he still spoke from the earth. 
His sermons were not perfect. But the one who comes from heaven is above all, even in what he proclaims. So in light of this, Jesus is beyond all. For no one can be better than him. No one can be above him, either in nature or in origin. And so John emphasizes with clarity that Jesus is better than he is. Let's go to the second point in verses 32 and 33. It says, He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. Now again, since Jesus is above all, it should go without saying that he is a better witness than John is. A better witness to the plans and promises and faithfulness and goodness and character of God. It says he testifies to what he has seen and heard. John was a witness to share with people what God had told him, but Jesus Jesus shares or testifies from what he has personally seen and what he has personally heard. Jesus teaches nothing that he does not fully and completely know. This is something that is of vital importance and this point is made several times. In John chapter 12 verses 49 through 50 it says, Uh, Jesus says, For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Remember, Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is above all. Jesus is divine. Jesus has had communion with God forever. And then he says, he testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Now, in light of what has already been said, this this seems strange. I mean, Jesus is from heaven. Jesus is God. So why would no one accept him? John here, in a sense, is speaking with, with a great deal of confusion. Remember, what started this dialogue is a debate between a Pharisee, um, a Levite, I should say. Let's see. John's disciples and a certain Jew over a matter of ceremonial washing. So that's what started kind of this discussion. And then they go to John and they say, you know what? This Jesus is baptizing people and all the people are going to him. And, and their, their, their desire is to say, they should be coming to you. And John is, is the most popular speaker in the Israelite world, at least, at this time. He is drawing hordes of people who are coming to him. And yet he looks out, and even his own disciples are refusing to abandon him and go to Jesus. And here he says that no one accepts his testimony. Now, in light of what he's already said, again, this is odd, but understand that it is an exaggeration. For example, in chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, this exaggeration is made throughout Scripture, or throughout this Gospel, I should say, of kind of the the rule and then the exception that should spark our attention. 
In chapter 11, or sorry, chapter 1, verses 11 through 12, it says this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So notice, his own didn't receive him. Yet to all who did receive him. It's, it's kind of he makes this blanket statement, this reality, and then draws out a small exception so that it stands out in our minds. All who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. His own did not receive him. They did not accept his testimony. You see, again, the exceptions are what stands out. So his point is not that no one literally accepted his testimony. John has already had two of his disciples leave him and go follow Jesus at his call. But that in comparison to the crowds of unbelievers, there are almost no believers following after Christ. In comparison to the the, the crowds of people who are gathering to hear the philosophers of the age and the entertainers of the age and the actors of the age and the politicians of the age and even John himself, no one is going after this one who is greater than all of us because he is from above. And now in verse 33, we find the exception that stands out. He says, he testifies to what he's seen as heard, but no one accepts his testimony. The exception, whoever has accepted it, has certified that God is truthful. Now it is really important that we note here that that God has entrusted his credibility to the Son. And although all turn away, there is still hope. Not because of us, but because of the grace of God. The major point is that Jesus' words confirm the truthfulness of God. So no matter what other people say, no matter how many mock him and reject him, it doesn't matter. For accepting him is not to confirm the wisdom of people or even the wisdom of Jesus directly, but the wisdom of God. Again, notice that God's credibility, God's truthfulness is authentic. Notice you cannot believe in Jesus apart from affirming God as Father. You cannot disconnect the two. You cannot have one and reject the other. You cannot have Jesus apart from the Father and you cannot have the Father apart from the Son. The two always go together. If you affirm the words of Jesus, then you are affirming the words of God. And if you affirm the words of God, then you must affirm Jesus. This is the point that Jesus makes over and over again with people. He says, Moses wrote about me. And you don't believe him. You you believe those are the words of God. And so if if you truly believed in them, then you would see me. And he says to his disciples, he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You you don't disconnect the two. In chapter 8, verse 26, Jesus says, He who sent me is trustworthy, and what I have heard from him I tell the world. Like John or any other witness, Jesus can testify only to what he has seen or heard. But because he was with God in the beginning... His testimony is unique and final, and thus he is a far, far better witness than John or anyone else. Let's look at the last point. Jesus is superior 
to John. Let's read verses 34 and 35. It says, For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Now some believe that verse 34 is speaking of John the Baptist and then is compared or contrasted with verse 35 that then speaks of Jesus. But, but I think in, in light of the context that this verse is fully speaking of Jesus. And in other words, John has kind of removed himself from the picture and is just going to focus now on Jesus. And although God did send John, as it says in chapter 1, verse 6, and in 3, verse 28, God has also sent his son, as we noted in John 3, 16. I think that the Trinitarian emphasis here is important for us to see. It's God the Father who gives, it's, it's Jesus the Son who comes, and it's through the Spirit that God speaks. The point that the Spirit is given without limit is, is important. It's, it's an emphasis, you could, you could translate it as without measure. And the point is that the, the Spirit was not given to Jesus in a temporal way, in a temporary way, as it was generally done in the Old Testament. But unlike other prophets, the Spirit remained on Jesus and continued to bless and empower His ministry. Remember, Jesus has taken off His divinity. Jesus has taken away and, and, and set aside, as, as uh, Philippians 2 emphasizes, his, 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 in a sense we could say, God powers or godly powers, so that He could stand in in our stead. And Jesus depends upon the Spirit for the ability to live and do the miracles that He does and, and walk faithfully with His God, just as we are called to. As a reminder for us that we have what we need to walk faithfully with our God in the Spirit, the same Spirit who Jesus had. Look at chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. It says, then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. The emphasis there is, is the reality of the, of the remaining of the Spirit. It's not just that you will see the Spirit come upon him. That's happened before. But you will see the Spirit come upon him and it will remain on him. It will remain with him. And so here, there's this connection here for, with the God giving the Spirit without limit. That There's this, this fullness or we could say this permanency to the giving of the Spirit of God. And the emphasis here is on the superiority of Jesus over all other prophets, including John the Baptist. Look at verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Note God's great, great love for His Son. This love is not the same as the love that He has for the world. This unique love is shown in His giving of the Son, the Spirit, without limit, without measure. 
This is a grand expression of God's love for his one and only son. But notice as well that God sent his son in accord with his love for him. God has placed everything, his reputation, his plan of salvation, his perfection in Jesus' hands. And God's love for the Son overflows to us in his giving of the Son. It is an extension of his love for the Son. All of the love that we ever enjoy from God the Father is an extension or flows through or because of his son. Look at verse 36. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever that rejects the son will not see life. For God's wrath remains on him. And here John the Baptist is finishing up this conversation, talking with his disciples about the, the, the greatness of Jesus over him. The reality that when they came to him, they wanted him to to publicly denounce what Jesus is doing and basically say, we started that. Like, we're the original raised chicken. He's just a copy. You know, you got to come to the original place. That's what they wanted of him. But his reaction is is the opposite. His reaction is, no, I've been copying him. He's the greatest one. He's the better one. He's the the more perfect one. He's the more loved one. He's the more special one. He's everything. He must become more and I must become less. John magnifies God's kindness by warning people, even his own disciples, that there is no escape from death from punishment for our sin except through the Son, through the deliverance that Christ offers. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. Now, understand that to believe is not just a mental affirmation. That's not the point here, nor is it anywhere else in Scripture. But it means to trust fully upon. The old adage is that that to to believe in a chair means to put your weight upon that chair. And, And leaning on that chair does not say that you fully trust in that chair. It's only when you let yourself go and let your knees buckle and let all of your weight sit on that chair is it affirmed that you believe in that chair. It's another old story that that I don't know why, but I tell it a lot. But uh, if, if I were on a house and I was, I was a young child and the house was on fire and there was no way for me to get out and I climbed to the roof and my dad was standing down there and he said, jump, I'll catch you. If I said, I believe you and then sit down and wait for my destruction, you would all say, you didn't believe him. Belief happens when you Jump. It's not a verbal affirmation. It's a commitment. It's a a confidence from self. The willingness to jump from the fire into the arms of Christ. We know this in part in this text because of the negative statement. In verse 18, we are told whoever does not believe. Look at verse 18 in chapter 3. 
Again, just to get kind of our context together. It says, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed the name of God's one and only Son. So notice that that does not believe has now been changed to whoever rejects the Son in the second part of this verse. And the point of the change is to emphasize this reality of rejection is more of a physical term. Belief is generally considered to be kind of a psychological term, a mental term. But to reject in Greek especially means to turn away from. It means to to affirm and act upon. And so the change here reminds us and emphasizes the reality that that to, to disbelieve is not just to say, well, maybe. But it is to adamantly reject Christ and turn away from him to turn toward other gods, to turn toward other means of salvation, whether it be our own good works or our own wisdom or our own confidence in saying, you know what, I'm good enough, God will let me in. Notice also that the benefit of believing is stated in the present tense. Has. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. The consequence of of disbelief or of rejection is is both a present and a future reality. It is as if John is saying that those who, who believe in the Son, you have and will forever have eternal life. It is yours now. Paul makes the case that, that this is something, a reality that is yours presently as soon as you believe. And he says that the the Spirit comes upon you as you believe and is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance into the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know if you've ever had to lay down a deposit for something, lay down some money for something, and then then not come through and lost your deposit. Like, I, I remember being a youth pastor, and that happened to me every year. Like, we'd plan to do something, go somewhere, and we'd have to pay a deposit for how many kids I thought would come, and it was all, there was always more or less than I thought there was. Like sign-up sheets ahead of time in youth group, I learned, didn't mean anything when I was a youth pastor. It didn't mean anything. I was going to lose that deposit because it was going to be different than what I originally thought it was going to be. God never loses his deposit. God never fulfills the requirements of his contract and keeps his word. If God has given the deposit, God will finish what he started. And and so this reality is that that it it is ours. We have it and it cannot be removed or taken from us. But on the other end of this perspective, the consequence of disbelief or of rejection here it's, it's almost as if John says that those who reject the Son not only do not presently have eternal life, but that they also will never see life. It's this, you, you don't have it now and you have no hope of it in the future. If you're going to turn aside from Jesus, that, that's all you get. That's all you have. And if you turn away from Him, there's no back door into heaven. There's no other place to put put your hope and your trust. 
This is the reality of the gospel message, that God in love has given us one means of salvation, the only possible means of salvation, sending his perfect son to redeem us so that we could be saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus alone. Not by baptism, not by circumcision, not by acts of righteousness, but by fully trusting in the work of Jesus Christ. By trusting with our minds and trusting with our lives. But notice why. For here we're reminded of why whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And he says, for God's wrath remains on them. This term to remain stresses that God's righteous wrath is not just a, a future reality. Paul makes this clear in, in Romans 1.18. He emphasizes that God's wrath is already being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of this generation. He's, he's emphasizing that, that God is already judging our sin, that he has not kind of turned a blind eye to it and just said, you know what, I'm going to deal with you later. God doesn't deal that way. I know I've, I have at times done the, well, at least for me, it was a lazy parent situation where I got mad at the kids or they did something and I said, just wait till your mother gets home. <laughs> you know, the consequence was, you know, when, when mom gets home, there will be consequences. God doesn't work like that. God doesn't say, in light of our, as Calvin says, our cosmic rebellion against God, against his beauty and authority. In light of that, he doesn't just say, just wait till Christ returns. It's going to be bad. He says it's, it's already bad. And it's just going to get worse. I'm already going to judge you. I'm already going to stand against you because you are my enemy. Paul says that in our sins we are enemies of God. This is the reality of the nature of our sin. And some people who say, you know what, you can't have a God who's loving who also gets angry or also has wrath. To which, honestly, none of us would really truly agree with that concept. But, but a God of love must also have the capacity of anger. Otherwise, his love is not very full. Would it not be appropriate if someone hurt the one I loved for me to be angry about it? Here, God's wrath, is, as one author said, is, is a passionate, righteous anger cresting the walls of heaven and spilling over onto the earth. And while it is indeed a passionate, upsurging response, it is completely consistent with God's holy character, which is also love. His wrath is, without question, fearsome. And yet it is also controlled, deliberate, measured, and utterly just. His wrath is nothing less than a reasonable expression of his righteous character and his unfailing love when confronted with evil. It is not loving for God not to be just. We all know that to be true. We all want God to be just, just not with us. 
I mean, I, I love talking to people when they, well, I don't love it, but, well, sometimes I do. But talking to people who kind of say, you know what, everyone's going to get to heaven because God is love. And then, and then I like to say, so, so you wouldn't have a problem if when you get to heaven, your roommate is Hitler. Like, you'd be okay with that. To which I've never had somebody go, yeah. I've heard a lot of excuses of, well, it's going to be a big mansion, so he'll be on his side and I'll be on my side. No. We want a God who is just. Just not with us. The reality of God's wrath is that it is complete injustice. It is complete in his, in his purity and his requirement that those who dwell with him also be pure. And this is the work that Jesus has done for us on the cross. He bore our guilt and our shame and our sin so that all who believe in him would be confident and would stand without any condemnation in the presence of the Father. All sins must be paid for. Every single one. And there are only two ways of paying for them. Either the sinner will pay for them for the rest of eternity in hell, as is a fitting punishment. Not because of their sin against you or me, but because of their sin against God. It is a fitting judgment that that be the case. Or those sins were redeemed by God's one and only Son on the cross for all who believe. Friends, John is making this case as clearly as he can. Whoever believes has life. The wrath of God is no longer on you. Romans 8, 1, there's no more condemnation for those who are, who are you in Jesus Christ. It's gone. Why? Because of Jesus. And in light of that, then, how should we live? How should, how should we seek to glorify Him? How should we seek to respond to such a love? To love Him in return. He must become greater and I must become less. To make much of Him and little of ourselves to give our lives wholly to serving and following after Him, to sharing that message with everyone that we come across. Again, this is the one and only means of salvation given. And with these words, John the Baptist's testimony is finished in this gospel. This is the last that he says. He disappears from the story. But not until he can emphatically declare that Jesus is better than he is. That Jesus is a better witness than he is. And that Jesus is superior to him. Friends, let me challenge you and encourage you to know that if no matter how much you have sinned, Jesus' death is sufficient. Jesus' reach is enough. If you will confess your sins and believe upon Jesus Christ, then you will be saved. And you will be, as 
we read earlier in this chapter, you will be born again. And any of us here, or myself, Pastor Michael, anybody else who's on the stage, we'd love to talk to you about it. But for all of you who have believed already, I wonder if we're following after John the Baptist's example. I wonder if we're, we're living our lives in such a way that emphasizes that Jesus is better than me. That Jesus is greater than me. That my life is not epitomized by my achievements and my glory, but it is epitomized by the glory of God in redeeming me and making me His. Do you faithfully proclaim to the world that Jesus is better than you? Do you also affirm to the world that God's word is better than your wisdom? That God's word is faithful and true because it is sourced in God, because it is revealed to us through Jesus and the Spirit. Do you have confidence in saying, you know what, I, I want to tell you about my Savior and I'm just not going to make things up or I'm not going to get things from Time Magazine or I'm not going to get things from the History Channel, which is a crock when it comes to anything scripturally related. But I'm going to go to Scripture and I'm going to trust fully in the words of God, even if I don't get it and even if I disagree with it, I am going to say, because thus says the Lord, He must become greater and I must become less. Because this is the wisdom of God. Whether it fits with my wisdom or not is irrelevant. Even if I can't explain to someone why I do this or that, all I need say is, thus says the Lord. And that's sufficient for me. Sufficient for me to live and breathe and grow. Do you live your life in such a way and, and speak in such a way that you express the, 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 the reality that God's word is better than your wisdom as it relates to the church and as it relates to the actions and thoughts and things that you do with your everyday life. And finally, are you willing, are you willing to acknowledge faithfully with your life that Jesus is superior to any pastor or any church. That your commitment, first and foremost, is in Him. Not the church, not a pastor, but Him. And you commit to a church, not because the church is perfect or supreme or necessary, but because of your love for Him. And you submit to a pastor and his leadership, not because of, 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 of his greatness, but because of Christ working through him. Because of your commitment to Christ. So often we, we, make, we make our pastors and we make our churches out to be these sacred things, forgetting that they, they only are to help us to understand the only truly sacred being. The one who is superior over all of it. Jesus Christ. Him crucified, our Savior and our Lord. Friends, are you willing to declare openly with your life that Jesus is better than you are, that God's word is, is better than your wisdom, 
and that Jesus is superior to your pastor and your elders and your deacons and your church and your denomination and all else to say that only one sits on the throne of my heart and my life is Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me pray. God, thank you for the beauty of your word. Thank you for the the testimony that John gives us of a a man who willingly was, was rejoicing in the coming of Jesus was rejoicing in, in, in his minimization in the world. God, I pray that you, would give, excuse me, that you would give us wisdom to do the same. Wisdom to think much of Christ. To glorify him above all else. To see him as wondrous and beautiful. To allow our dreams to, be, to, to revolve around and be fixated around Him and His glory rather than our own. God, help us to trust fully in Your Word, to know that it is faithful and true. Father, give us wisdom not to trust our own wisdom, but instead to submit to Your Word. And God, give us faithfulness and wisdom as we understand and as we submit and acknowledge that Jesus is superior to all else, to our political affiliations and our religious affiliations and, and, and all other things, all of it, although not bad, is all secondary to Christ. God, help us to be wise in the way we live and what we say so that we proclaim the superiority of Christ in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.